Buddhist geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 106, Tibetan Buddhist Lineage in the West. Reggie Ray, Tibetan Buddhist scholar and teacher, is with us again this week to explore the Tibetan lineage in the West. This is part two of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. You know, one of the issues also with Tibetan Buddhism, which I think we all have to deal with as practitioners and as teachers, is the tendency we all have to spiritual bypassing, which is a term invented by or coined by John Wellwood, who's a very gifted uh, mm-hmm. psychologist and has written a lot about spirituality and psychology. And spiritual bypassing is that because we have the misconception in our modern world, that spirituality is a matter of separating ourselves mm-hmm. from the gritty, ordinary reality of our own day-to-day lives, we tend to e- use even Tibetan Buddhism in the service of further disembodiment. So we use our Tibetan practices mm. to try to enter some sort of ideal world rather than to re-embody. Mm. So this is something we all face, and it's something that's mm. very much a reality in, in our world. I live in Creston, Colorado, as you know, where we mm-hmm. have a retreat center there, and there are a number of wonderful somatic practitioners there, a rolfer that I know and work with, and uh, some acupuncturists and some other people. And they have told me that people who practice Tibetan Buddhism, of which there are many in our world now, many in Creston, and, and they were like putting this to me as a challenge when I first met them. You know, practitioners of Tibetan Buddhism are among the most disembodied people they've ever met. <laughs> And, I, and I, you know, I mean, I was stunned because, yeah. you know, from my point of view, the whole point of Tibetan Buddhism, as you're saying, is to re-embody yeah. and to experience the sacredness of what it means to be human. Yeah. And so I found that very, very interesting, and I've been thinking about it ever since. <laughs> very ironic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and I don't remember exactly how far back, but in the last few years, kind of recent, you started your own retreat center. And when I was thinking about this question, it's kind of funny using words because using start new would automatically ignores where your roots are in Trungpa Rinpoche's teachings. But in terms of the Western context, you differentiated from the Shambhala Center, which is another group that's mm-hmm. dedicated to Trungpa Rinpoche's teachings. Mm-hmm. So it's just an interesting topic in general to, to speak with you about mm-hmm. what does that mean for you? What does that look like in terms of starting a new direction, a new lineage almost, right? Well, the way I view it is, yes, and, and yes. I'll, I'll put it in sort of um, maybe stark terms, and then we can talk about it. Sure. From my point of view, I have simply continued what I learned from my teacher. Right. And the community I was part of took a different direction and began doing other things. Yeah. And I think you'll find, if you talk to Trungpa Rinpoche students, I don't think anybody would argue with that point. Yeah. But what is different, I think, about me and also some other people who've done the same thing, and by the way, there are increasing numbers of his older students who are starting to do exactly what I'm doing, which mm-hmm. is teach what they learned from him. Mm-hmm. What is different is that many people who studied with Trungpa Rinpoche, when his son came into power and began doing things differently, mm-hmm. they changed their direction. Mm-hmm. 
And I have no problem with that. I think that's certainly a personal choice and uh, something that, you know, they felt that was, they wanted to continue to be mm -hmm. part of the same organization and wanted to really explore the new directions that were happening. But some people were not comfortable with that. And my sense from Trunk Rinpoche, and, and I was a very fortunate person in a way because I was one of the people who met him immediately when he came to this country mm -hmm. and worked with him in the early years, which, where, frankly, the transmission, in my opinion, was the most powerful the first few years he was here from 1970 through maybe 1976. Mm -hmm. My experience of him was so indelibly imprinted, not just on my soul, but in my body and in my cells, mm -hmm. that when the community began going in a different direction, it was choiceless for me to continue teaching his teaching. And the sequence of development really was, as people were asked to change their teaching, you know, the senior teachers were asked to mm. begin teaching other things and begin teaching in other ways, I found myself incapable of doing it. So for actually quite a number of years mm. at the Shambhala Mountain Center where I was teacher in residence, I kept teaching his teaching. And at a certain point, it became really inelegant for me to continue there because it was difficult for everybody else. I mean, mm. here's this person who, from their viewpoint, I was hanging on to the past. Mm. And uh, why wasn't I willing to make the changes that the institution was requiring? Although nobody said, why don't you go someplace else? It just really became, I felt impolite really to continue doing it in that context mm. and confusing everybody else meantime half the staff were students of mine and we're doing it you know we're following Trungpa Rinpoche's teaching so at a certain point I just decided maybe it's time for me to actually admit the fact that what I'm doing is different mm -hmm. and that in, in being in line with Trungpa Rinpoche's teaching is different from what's going on now maybe I should just go someplace else and at that time, I had about 100 students, and they were all clamoring to, you know, what's wrong with you? Why don't we start our own center? Mm -hmm. And I finally gave in. Mm. So you had a lot of motivation from your students. I had a huge amount. And wow. in particular, they wanted to receive Vajrayana teaching from me. And up until I left the Shamal Mount Center, I was unwilling to do it, just because the organization had put in place rules where, yeah. whereby Trung Rinpoche senior students were not allowed really to give transmission, and we're not really mm -hmm. allowed to mentor students as their primary students. So my students, I admit it, it was their inspiration. And I wonder sometimes, where was I? I mean, why didn't I get this figured out earlier? But I didn't. And mm -hmm. finally, the pressure built up. And yeah, and we left. Yeah. We went to Crestone over four years ago, and it's been bombs away. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting, as we've interviewed people from different traditions, I've mm -hmm. just noticed quite a bit of difference between the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and mm -hmm. the other traditions. We've spoken with plenty of insight teachers and mm -hmm. Zen teachers mm -hmm. who have done just what you've done. Mm -hmm. It's actually feeling more and more common to me from mm -hmm. those traditions. Like it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. And mm -hmm. you know, talking with you, it's not a big deal for me. Like everything you said, it makes perfect sense yeah. that you've done what you've done. Yeah. But there seems to be a charge around it for a lot of other people. Or if they don't know about your situation, if you talk to them about a hypothetical situation yeah. in the Tibetan tradition, it would get a charge. But in the other traditions, it's not. So I'm like, what's the difference here? Yeah. Um, why isn't this happening more often? If it's happening in the other traditions, it would make sense to happen in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. So why isn't it happening? This is a very good question. Yeah. And um, I don't know if you know who Diane Eck is. She's uh, 
wonderful scholar of mm. Hinduism and mm. was here a few years ago and asked me that very question. She said, you're a scholar. This was before I started teaching Dharma. Right. And she said, you're a scholar, and it's weird. In the Tibetan tradition, all you white people are scholars, but nobody's allowed to yeah. be a teacher. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. what, exactly. what's the deal? Yeah. And strangely enough, I hadn't thought of that question, but after she asked me, I did think about it a lot. And there are a couple of things here. The first thing is, in, even within Tibetan tradition, the rule is that you study with a great teacher, mm -hmm. and you practice, and you continue studying after his death. Mm-hmm his or her death, mm -hmm. only in Tibetan Buddhism it's usually his. And after a certain point, you are required in order for your own development and for the spread of the Dharma to go out and take your own students and begin teaching in the same way that your teacher did. I mean, it's just mm. how it's done. Right. So then we can ask, what about the other traditions? And it's the same there. If you look at Theravada Buddhism, it's that way. If you look at Zen Buddhism, it's that way. So again, we come back to your question, yeah. why isn't it happening with Tibetan Buddhism? You know, these are, these are touchy issues, and I'm yeah. just giving my opinion. Sure. I mean, other people would say other things. But I think there are two items here. One is, among all of the Buddhist traditions, I think the most conservative is Tibetan Buddhism. Mm. And this is because of the conservatism and the, the isolation of Tibetan culture itself. Mm. I mean, Tibetan culture really cut itself off from the rest of, of Asia in order to try to preserve itself in the face of these huge cultures, India to the south, China, Russia. Mm. But it also affected Buddhism, where Buddhism became very, very conservative, and there was a tremendous emphasis on not changing anything mm. and doing everything the way it was done in the past. And part of that whole world is that foreign people, that the Tibetans have a kind of unique possession of the Dharma. And even though mm. there are many Tibetans who do not feel that way, nevertheless, that's the main stream of attitudes within traditional Tibetan Buddhism. Mm -hmm. So one issue is, you know, is that one, that are Tibetans really willing and do they feel capable and able to fully transfer their traditions to people who are different? There are some Westerners who are now empowered by Tibetans, but these are people who have learned Tibetan, they dress in Tibetan clothes, they sit on the high thrones, <laughs> they require their students to do prostrations. Mm. I mean, it's almost as if they have become Tibetans. Yeah. Mm. But for Western teachers who are not doing that, to be fully empowered simply based on their own understanding, their practice, and their realization would be such a stretch for what Tibetan tradition is used to. So that's one issue. Yeah. And, you know, Trung Rinpoche said that one of his problems with Tibetan culture was that Tibetans tend to look down on other people. And when he was in, and I'm not saying this is true of the whole culture, but this, this is something that he mentioned. Mm. When he was in England and he started teaching Westerners, that's why he was thrown out of his monastery, because the other Tibetans there really felt and told him so that, that they felt Westerners can't understand the Dharma and you shouldn't be teaching them the highest teachings and, mm -hmm. you know, they really are lay people and, and we should keep this within the, the family fold. Mm -hmm. So I think that's an important issue. And the other thing is, frankly, the Tibetans are in a very, very difficult position now as refugees and really they're trying to preserve their culture. And rightly so, they yeah. should try to preserve their culture. But yeah. part of preserving their culture is preserving Tibetan Buddhism in its traditional form. Mm. And I think there's some hesitation there that if Western people are empowered, fully empowered to carry on the traditions, that it may end up eroding mm. 
what they're trying to do in preserving the culture and the tradition. So there are a lot of forces at stake here, but one sort of countervailing tendency is that Trung Rinpoche himself told me and told many other students in the early days, my expectation is I'm training you like tulkus, I'm not training you like lay people, and my expectation is each one of you will continue to study, will do the practice, will attain some understanding, and will go out and train your own students. Mm. And uh, his Dharma heir, the Vajra regent, with all of his mixed history and all of mm. the pain around his his life and yeah. death, told me the same thing and basically said to me in 1974, who are your students? And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, you should be planning to become a teacher in your own right. And who are they? Who are you working with? Mm. And this is what we're doing. This is what we're about. Right. So this was Trung Rinpoche's approach, and in some sense it did set him apart from a lot of the other teachers, a lot of the other Tibetan teachers. Mm, thank you. That was wonderful. Yeah. A lot of things I hadn't thought about. You have a kind of follow-up question, mm. um, which when you were speaking, I was wondering what impression Westerners might get from that in terms of how possible is it to actually achieve what the practices are about if there aren't other Westerners, a lot of other Westerners who are being empowered to teach. Is it possible that that has a disempowering impact on some practitioners where they're like, oh, I don't see anyone else. I don't see any other of my my cultural peers who are empowered to teach this stuff, so they, they must not have realized anything. Is that possible? Well, it is possible. And one thing, you bring up actually a very important issue, which is another reason I think the Tibetans are hesitant to empower Westerners, which is that Westerners are, I don't know how to put this in, in a way that it doesn't sound too negative, but since I've been giving transmission and teaching Vajrayana and teaching students at all levels, including the most advanced levels, which has been going on now for you know a number of years, I have been befriended by quite a number of the younger Tibetan tulkus. Mm. And their basic message to me, strangely enough, has been, thank you. Thank you for stepping forward. Thank you for continuing Trungpa Rinpoche's teaching because it needs to happen. It needs to be continued in the way that he taught it. And we talk further, and we talk about these issues of why aren't more Westerners actually being empowered. And one of the things that they have told me, which, and I think it's really true, is Westerners are not always the best practitioners. And mm -hmm. many times there's a tremendous amount of enthusiasm at the beginning when they meet a Tibetan teacher and they begin doing practices. But several of these friends of mine, and I'm, I'm not going to mention their names because they'll get emails, but <laughs> um, you know, several of them have said to me, one in particular who I'm very close to, he's very sad because he feels that he told me recently we were having some drinks together, and his usual reticence kind of fell away, and he, he said he felt very sad because he didn't know if Tibetan Buddhism was going to make it in the modern world. Not in that, of course, the tradition will keep going, and the very traditional way of teaching it will, but he said that isn't what Buddhism is supposed to be, and that's not what the Vajrayana is supposed to be. It needs to come into the modern world in a modern way, and we need the Western people to do that. And he said he was very sad because... Many of the people he works with, initially there's this enthusiasm and then they just can't keep it up and mm. they stop doing retreats and they'll do a little bit of daily practice. And so that's another 
I, I think, very legitimate hesitation on the part of Tibetan teachers is that, you know, frankly, we in the West have, have trouble sticking with things. And the kind of sustained practice over, over decades, which is necessary to really achieve some realization, most people are either unable or, or they're not quite into it. And that brings up a whole host of questions, which well, the broad one is why, but then because I'm thinking there are plenty of other areas in our culture where people put in the kind of time and effort that's equivalent, like getting a PhD, for instance, yeah. is just years and years and years of intensive training and yeah. study and, and then going on to be a scholar and continuing that. And yeah. So I'm just wondering why you think it is that Westerners, in, just in general, as dedicated or committed practitioners... Well, we could ask in the monasteries of India, the Tibetan monasteries where Tibetan tukus are being trained, they aren't either. Hmm. You know, it's very difficult to keep them engaged. Hmm. And a lot of them are wandering off and doing other things. They get their training and then they go do other things. They don't want to carry it on. And we can ask why in that case also. Hmm. And hmm. I think we live in a world where immediate gratification, I mean, I know it sounds trite to say it, but we can always find some pleasure somewhere. And the thing about practice is it's very much like learning a musical instrument or anything that requires a tremendous amount of discipline. There are not that many people willing to do it. Mm. And the, the other issue is that there's no cultural payoff. You right. know, there's no payoff. Right. I mean, somebody can practice their whole life and nobody cares. And, right. and, and nobody in the culture says anything. I mean, who cares? There's still a dishwasher at a local Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Right. Now, from my point of view, that guarantees the integrity of the practice. Mm. When I find people who are really serious about it and really are turned on by the kind of depth of experience and transformation that occurs and are willing to stick with it, that guarantees the integrity. So it's not a, necessarily a bad thing, but it really limits the number of people who are willing to do it. Right. And the Tibetans see that, and they're hesitant. You know? right. They don't want to hand their teachings over to people who are not going to take them seriously enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've heard f figures from Alan Wallace, like many of the Tibetan yogis spend 50,000, 60,000 hours meditating in the course of a lifetime. And, yeah. I mean, most of the positive psychology research says that 10,000 hours minimum to master a particular skill or technique and it does seem like they're not one there isn't the payoff to do that it's not like we can make a good livelihood necessarily if mm -hmm. we put that kind of time and energy in mm -hmm. and two like you're saying just not a lot of people are doing that <laughs> yeah but think about it this is one of the things i figure out in retreat like how many hours have i meditated i don't know it's just like you, you try to think of anything to keep your, your mind busy right sure. <laughs> and if you're willing to do over a 10-year period if you're willing to do daily practice of say an hour or two retreat maybe a month to two months a year yeah you can do 10,000 hours of meditation every 10 years right in 30 or 40 years that's 30 or 40,000 hours of meditation and i tell my students i can absolutely guarantee you that everything is going to change many 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 times over that period of time mm -hmm. and you will come into a way of living your life that fulfills a million times over anything you can get from getting a PhD or being wealthy or whatever it may be. Now, the problem is a lot of people don't believe me. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I have a hard time getting people to believe me. But, I mean, that's the deal. I mean, it's there. It's offered. You know, the Buddha said the greatest joy in life comes from practice. Mm -hmm. But I think we as Westerners just kind of don't quite believe it because we've heard that from everybody, that this is how you can be happy. And so we become cynical and we kind of 
just trying to be happy day in and day out without mm -hmm. doing the long-term thing. You know? Here's a kind of a blunt question. <laughs> sure. So, for instance, in the Theravada tradition, there, there are maps that describe some of the, the ways that things tend to progress, mm -hmm. though there are a lot of individual differences. Can I tell you something funny? Yes. Before we go on? Sure. A Tibetan forest monk of great attainment came, I have some students in Thailand, some Thai students who are teaching yeah. my teachings in Thailand. Oh, yeah, yeah. One of my students brought this meditator to meet me in Crestone. Mm -hmm. And it was wonderful. I mean, we were flying in the same sky. Yeah. But he started in on the map thing, and he mm -hmm. wanted to know, he started asking me all these questions to try to figure out where I was on his map. Mm -hmm. I find that ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not where I'm going with No, it. I know you're not, but I just had to mention that. Sure, sure. <laughs> That's a whole another interesting yeah, thing is, is the, yeah. the maps within the, the traditions, yeah. but yeah. I'm more laying it out as a, as a way to ask a question, sure. which is oftentimes, it, and you've talked about this yourself, uh, one of the recent audio programs is listening to you describe this, where there's initial kind of difficult period of practice, yeah. uh, call it the dark night, and the Theravada, they call it the rolling up of the mat stage. It's the period where people are just like, I'm done with this. Yeah. I don't see why I should keep going. It's not pleasant. Yeah. It's not clear anymore. Yeah. I'm wondering how much of Westerners' lack of, like you said, the initial enthusiasm, because it doesn't take long to get to this point. Yeah. How much of people's kind of burning out is related to these kind of initial periods of practice, which can often be very difficult and without the proper guidance and the proper view mm -hmm. of like, oh, this is part of the path. Mm -hmm. Can people just fizzle out? That seems to be, from what I can see, a big part of it. But I'm wondering, from a teacher perspective, you must deal with, that kind of thing on a daily basis. So well, I would, I would agree with that. I think that the, yeah, there is this, it's very, very true. In the beginning, people often are really seeing their own obstacles and seeing how monumental the journey seems. And yeah, they often will turn away. But another very important thing that happens, you know, within the Tibetan tradition, we have this thing called pointing out. And mm -hmm. I think we have this, uh, also Theravada Buddhism has its own version of that. And so, so does Zen. But, in working with the body, you can, I can, people can bring a practitioner into an experience of their own unborn mind, their own natural state, their own freedom fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. And often that's where the enthusiasm rises from. They realize, wow, that's it. You know, I have this within my experience and this is accessible. Mm -hmm. And when I, as I was saying, when I view my life from that point of view, it's entirely different. Mm -hmm. But then the expectation is that they can just live in that space. Just hang out there. Yeah. <laughs> it's done. <laughs> yeah, it's done. I'm finished. But what they are not prepared for, and this is, again, we have this whole issue of the difficulty Western people have to relate to relative reality as sacred. Mm. What happens is the deeper you go in your own fundamental freedom, the deeper you stir up your obstacles. And the process of the path is... You go deep and you open and you experience a huge amount of joy and liberation. And that very state generates further depths of confusion and paranoia and fear. Mm. And those rise to the surface and they take you over as a practitioner. And you have to be very stable person and willing to endure that. Mm -hmm. And when people figure that out, that it's not just about hanging out in some blissful space, but mm -hmm. it's actually cycles between that blissful space mm -hmm. and hard work, often mm -hmm. that's when they, they check out because they, they go, I don't really need to experience this level of my own 
mm. you know, misery and confusion. Mm. They just don't want to do it. Mm. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.